If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Made by Podster. Before I begin, I would like to warn you that this episode refers to acts of rape and violence of a particularly serious nature. During their backpacking trip to Australia and New Zealand, young Swedish couple Heidi Pakkanen and Urban Hooglin frequently sent letters and postcards to their family and friends back home. The letters told of their experiences, their encounters with the local people, and their plans for their future travels. But one day, the letters stopped. You're listening to Tracing Darkness. I'm Lainey Hobbs, and today we are following a case from the late 80s, before the internet and mobile phones, a case of a young Swedish couple who suddenly disappear in the New Zealand countryside. Heidi Pakkanen and Urban Hooglin met in the small Swedish town of Storforsch. Both had lived in the area all their lives, but they first got to know each other when they started working in the same supermarket. Heidi's first day at work was when she was 18 years old. She had decided to take a gap year after high school before starting her teacher training program. Urban, who was two years older than Heidi, had joined the army after high school and returned to his hometown after his service, where he got a job at Domus, a now-defunct department store chain. Heidi worked in the cosmetics department and Urban at the checkout. After dating for less than a year, the couple got engaged and moved into a rented apartment together. 
knowing that they would be tied to Sweden for many years during their studies, they wanted to do something fun and different before they started studying. Urban was the one who came up with the idea of traveling around Australia and New Zealand. He had always been an outdoor person, and his dream was for him and Heidi to hike and live the backpacker lifestyle there. According to those closest to Urban, he was an experienced hiker who would take on even the most challenging trails. He would travel with his backpack filled to the brim with gear, or he would go without his hiking equipment to challenge himself for a few days and sleep on the ground in the middle of the forest. When Heidi went hiking with him, however, Urban was much more careful and sensible. He always made sure to bring enough extra clothes and plenty of food in case they got lost. As a result, none of their loved ones worried about their travel plans, as they knew that Heidi and Urban were experienced and capable of fending for themselves. Heidi planned the couple's flight itinerary. The couple flew from Stockholm to Los Angeles via Copenhagen, then Tahiti, Auckland, and finally to Brisbane, Australia. Urban's parents drove the couple and their backs to Stockholm Airport on September 16, 1988. They said their goodbyes and flew out. Urban and Heidi had packed camping equipment and fishing gear, among other things. In an era before cell phones and internet access, Heidi and Urban promised to write to their family and friends regularly to report on the trip. The journey from Stockholm to Brisbane took a total of 48 hours, including all transfers, so the couple were pretty exhausted when they finally arrived in Australia. Urban and Heidi's journey nearly came to an end almost before it had begun. Within the first few days of their trip, Urban contracted an infection that forced him to spend two weeks in an Australian hospital. He developed a high fever and lost a lot of weight during the two weeks he was in there. So when he left the hospital, he was still in very poor health. The doctors never found out what infection Urban had contracted. In any case, Heidi and Urban decided to continue traveling. They wrote home to Sweden that Urban had recovered and that after his hospital stay, the trip had continued as planned. The couple spent three months in Australia before continuing their adventure in Auckland, New Zealand. The couple's idea all along had been to buy a second-hand car in Auckland that was still in relatively good condition and drive it around the country. Surprisingly, they came across a Swedish man in the city who was easy to deal with. Urban and Heidi bought a Subaru from him for just under 2,000 New Zealand dollars. From their letters home to Sweden, Heidi and Urban gave the impression that they had fallen madly in love with New Zealand, which they preferred to Australia. In Australia, they had been afraid of poisonous and dangerous insects and animals when out in the wild, and not all encounters with locals had gone well. In New Zealand, they felt safer in nature, although Heidi wrote in a letter to her mom that driving in the mountains was sometimes difficult as there were a lot of narrow and poorly maintained roads. In many of their letters, Heidi and Raban spoke warmly of the local people in New Zealand 
and said that they had received a lot of help from them, for example, in planning their walking routes. Although Heidi and Erbon didn't know exactly when they would return to Sweden when they left, both their parents assumed that the couple would return to Sweden in early May. It may be that Erbon and Heidi had agreed to work in Domus over the summer to save some money before starting their studies in the autumn. However, Heidi and Erbon did not return home in May, and their loved ones were now starting to worry. Neither Heidi nor Urban sent any letters home since the last letter, postmarked in Auckland on April 2nd. This was strange, as they had both been diligent in sending letters and postcards to their families and friends, often several within the same week. On May 21st, 1989, police officers in Auckland received a fax from Interpol, which had been contacted because Heidi and Urban's parents had still not heard from the couple and had reported them missing. Interpol asked if Auckland police had any information about the couple's whereabouts and if they could help with the search. The police, who had found an abandoned car several weeks earlier, immediately put two and two together. It probably belonged to the missing Swedish couple. A white Subaru, similar to the one they had bought secondhand, had been parked on a random street and had been reported to the police several times. The car had flat tires, one window had been smashed, other windows had been rolled down. In the car, police found some of Heidi and Urban's belongings, but no wallet or identification documents were found, for example. However, there were two airline tickets with Heidi and Urban's name on them. The tickets showed that the couple were flying from Auckland to the Cook Islands on April 20th. The police contacted the airline, which informed them that Heidi and Urban had not taken the flight. The police now considered that they had probably still not left the country. Heidi and Urban's disappearance was reported in the news and on TV, and a special team of police officers was quickly formed to investigate the case, which was named Operation Stockholm. While the police naturally wanted the case to be publicized as widely as possible, not all locals agreed. Many wanted to maintain the country's reputation as a safe destination, and the mysterious disappearance of the Swedish couple didn't fit in with their desired image. Any progress in searching for Heidi and Urban was slow for two reasons. Firstly, the police had no idea when the couple had disappeared. The last letter sent home to Sweden, as we know, was registered on April 2nd, but the police had no other information about the couple's movements after that date. Another problem was that the police didn't know where to start looking. The place where the couple's car had been found was an obvious place, but investigators weren't even sure that Heidi and Urban had left the car there. In their correspondence, the couple used to talk about their future travel plans, but anyone who knew them knew that their plans could change quickly. Fortunately, media coverage of the case led them to the couple. A farmer from the small town of Thames, an hour and a half from Auckland, contacted police and said he could shed some light on where Heidi and Urban might be heading. Thames was a small town of fewer than 10,000 people and has been described as a cozy seaside town with a wealth of walking routes. The town's website says it's a perfect destination for those looking for an outdoor adventure. The farmer's farm was in an elevated area, close to some exciting hiking trails. The farmer told police that about a month earlier, in mid-April, 
he had noticed that someone had hung a name tag saying Heidi Pakinen on one of his animal fences. The farmer thought that the sign might have come from a suitcase. When he had first seen the name tag, he hadn't given it much thought. Heidi and Urban's disappearance had not yet been discovered, so the name Heidi Pakinen didn't ring any bells with the farmer, who had simply taken the note off the fence and thrown it on the ground. He hadn't given it much thought when he made the discovery, but the unusual surname on the nameplate had stuck in his mind anyway, and then came back to him when he heard about the Swedish couple's disappearance on the news. After the farmer had called the police, he had returned to the place where he had thrown the name tag. He didn't think he would be able to find it again, but by a stroke of luck, the name tag was still on the ground and in relatively good condition. When the farmer searched for the name tag, he also found some clothes scattered around. The farmer thought that the clothes might have something to do with the couple's disappearance and reported it to the police. The farmer also reported that the clothing tags had been cut from the clothes he found. Some of the cut clothing tags were found in the ground, but not all of them. A few bags were also found in the area, which had probably contained the clothes. The police told the farmer that they would carry out some further investigations in the area and asked the farmer to be available to assist with the investigation if they needed to speak to him further. Some officers went out to look for more clues in the fields, while others went door-to-door to interview locals and those who worked in the town. Soon enough, the police found out where and when Heidi and Urban had most likely last been seen. A hairdresser named Paula said the young Swedish couple had come to her salon on Friday, April 7th, where Paula and another hairdresser had cut their hair. Heidi in particular had caught the attention of both hairdressers because of her looks. The hairdresser said that the tall blonde woman who stood 5 feet 9 inches tall looked like a Scandinavian supermodel. It was clearly the right decision for the police to move the investigation to Thames, Many local residents had seen the couple's car, which had attracted a lot of attention. On April 8th, some soldiers had been on a training exercise and had seen a white Subaru in the area parked near a hiking trail. When they spotted the car, there was no sign of people around it, and the car had stuck in their minds because of a large yellow sticker on one of the windows. Knowing that Heidi and Urban's car had such a sticker, The officers quickly concluded that the car the soldiers had passed must be the couple's car. The soldiers passed the same area again about half an hour after first spotting the car. A tent had been pitched and a young blonde couple were now on the site. Although the young couple matched the description of Heidi and Urban, the police could not be sure it was them. According to the soldiers, the car was no longer there. If the car had disappeared, how could Urban and Heidi still be in the area? The following day, Sunday, April 9th, the car had been seen again in the same area. A local couple had gone for a walk and passed the parked car. When they walked back along the same road they had come from two hours later, the car was still parked in the same place. The couple noticed a for sale sign in the car window, saying that the car could be purchased for $3,000 New Zealand dollars. As the couple had been looking for a secondhand car themselves, they stopped to check the car out. However, the couple were surprised to discover that a number of personal items had been left in the car. On the front seat was a camera and camera bag, and on the back seat were two sleeping bags, rucksacks, and camping equipment. 
They assumed that the car owners had gone for a short hike in the nearby countryside because they had not taken any sleeping bags or other equipment with them. Finally, the police knew that Heidi and her bond's car had been abandoned in Auckland, but as Auckland is over 70 miles from Thames, this information raised even more questions. Had the couple abandoned the car themselves? Or had their journey ended on the footpaths of Thames and someone else had driven to Auckland? Overall, the police officers had had a bad feeling from the very start of the investigation. In June, as the search continued, Urban and Heidi's family members arrived in New Zealand from Sweden to help and be closer to the investigation. The family members were overwhelmed by the landscape. They knew that Heidi and Urban were used to traveling around the Swedish forest and countryside, but New Zealand was different. The terrain was much more challenging, the forest was extraordinarily dense, and there were many places in the area where a fall could have fatal consequences. Family members feared that Heidi and Urban could have fallen and injured themselves while hiking. As the search in the terrain continued, the police received another tip-off. A witness claimed to have seen the couple's white Subaru parked outside a youth hostel in the center of Thames, but the witness, who had stayed at the hostel for a few nights, had not come across Heidi or Urban. The police hadn't had time to act on the witness's tip-off before they received a lead from an unexpected direction, all the way from Heidi and Urban's home country of Sweden. The Swedish newspaper Expressen had been following Heidi and Urban's disappearance and had published several pictures of the couple's car. A Swedish man named Haken contacted the Expressen journalist and said he might have information about the car. Eventually, Haken ended up telling what he knew to the Norsherping police, who assisted the New Zealand police in questioning witnesses. Haken told them that he had been camping in Thames with a Canadian woman called Anita. They had arrived at the hostel in the town center on April 9th and were considering where to go next. The following day, Hawken and Anita decided they would see the sights of Thames by car. The only problem was that they had neither a car nor connections to a driver. But then a man turned up who introduced himself as Pat Kelly. Pat said he had overheard their conversation and mentioned that he had a car and a good knowledge of the local sights. As he had nothing else to do, he promised to take Hawken, Anita, and an unnamed Swiss woman sightseeing the next day. Pat said he could drive tourists around the area all day if they would give him some gas money. According to Hawken, Pat's car had been a white Subaru with a yellow sticker on the window. No doubt, Urban and Heidi's car. According to Hawken, Pat had been around 30 to 35 years old with dark blonde hair. Nothing about Pat's behavior had made Hawken suspicious. Pat had been incredibly nice and obviously knew the area and its history well. The only detail that had made Hawken wonder was that the car had clearly not been Pat's own. Pat hadn't known how to tune the car radio or where the fishing tackle in the backseat came from. Pat claimed he had borrowed the car from a friend, but Hawken still found the situation a little strange. When the New Zealand police heard Hawken's story, they immediately went to the hostel and contacted the people who had stayed there at the same time as Hawken. The hostel staff provided a list of all the people who had checked in on April 9th or the following days. The police immediately discovered that a man had checked in on April 9th, who introduced himself as Pat Kelly. 
When the police investigated the man's details further, they realized that he had given a false address and phone number. Staff at the hostel told them that Pat had used the hostel's public phone a few times. The police investigated the calls the man had made. He had called an address in Auckland. The address to which the phone number was connected was that of a woman called Christine Tamahiri. When the police knocked on Christine's door the next day, she was very agitated. What do you want this time? was the first thing she asked. The police had already discovered that Christine's husband, David Tamahiri, had been in trouble with the law, so Christine's reaction didn't exactly surprise them. The 36-year-old David had committed his first serious offense at the age of 19 in 1972. He allegedly killed a 23-year-old stripper called Mary Barcham, a crime for which, for some reason, he only got two years in prison. What precipitated the murder was never fully explained, and David himself still swears to this day that it was an accident and that he never intended to kill Mary. According to David, he had got the impression that Mary had cheated on him. When he had tried to get out of the situation, the rifle in his hand had accidentally fired and the bullet had gone straight through Mary's head. After his release, David stayed out of trouble for 12 years, married Christine, and had two sons. In 1986, however, he committed another crime. He broke into a 47-year-old woman's home in Auckland where he tied her up, raped her, and threatened to kill her if she told anyone. This went on for a total of six hours. David was caught and brought to court, where he admitted his crime, but for some reason he was released on bail pending trial and quietly disappeared. David then began using the name Pat Kelly and spent most of his time in a tent near Auckland, pitching up at various campsites or staying in cheap motels or hostels. Occasionally, he would visit his wife and their two sons at home, but he never spent too long with them each time. He probably knew that the police were on the lookout for him and could search their shared home at any moment. David was at large until the end of May 1989, when he was identified and arrested by a police officer. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It is perhaps a strange coincidence that David was caught at the same time as the New Zealand police began their search for Heidi and Urban. Because David had been arrested, he was not present when the police arrived at his family's home in Auckland. Christine was certainly not thrilled to have the police running around, 
but let them in after the officers reassured her that they were only there to ask questions. When the officers entered the apartment, they immediately noticed a green raincoat hanging on the back of a chair. The green jacket was exactly the same as the one Urban had been wearing when he disappeared. The officers asked about the jacket, and Christine said that David had given the jacket to their son, but that he had not elaborated on where he got it. The officers were allowed to examine David's other belongings in the house, and they called in additional officers to conduct a search. The police were curious to know why Christine had stayed with her husband for 18 years when he had committed at least two, possibly more, violent and brutal crimes. To this, Christine replied that David had a problem with alcohol. When he drank, he became a completely different person and couldn't control his behavior. Christine and David had made an agreement that David could drink as long as he stayed away from home, so neither Christine nor the couple's children had to see David's dark side. According to Christine, neither she nor the children had ever been afraid of David, and he had never been violent or behaved in a threatening way towards them. Police searched David and Christine's home further and found a few other items they believed belonged to Urban and Heidi, including binoculars and a tent. The discovery of these items prompted the police to visit David in prison to ask if he knew what had become of the Swedish couple. David denied knowing anything about Heidi and Urban. In fact, he denied having heard anything about the case, which the police found hard to believe. The case had been all over the news, and everyone in Auckland and Thames couldn't help but hear about the couple's mysterious disappearance. The police asked about the white Subaru and whether David had ever driven a similar car. David denied knowing anything about the couple's car and also denied any knowledge of the possessions he had brought into his home and given to his sons. However, David eventually admitted that he had come across the white Subaru while hiding in the woods near Tararu Creek Road. According to his account, he was on a hiking trail on April 10th when he spotted the car on the side of the road. David had looked through the car's windows and noticed that it contained camping equipment and a camera that looked valuable. David tried the car's exhaust pipe and, as it was still warm, he reckoned that the owners had only just started a long hike and that he would therefore have plenty of time to break into the car. David removed a metal wire from a nearby fence and used it to break into the car. The driver's side window was slightly ajar, and David fed the wire through the hole and got it to the handle on the inside of the car door so that the door could be opened. While going through the contents of the car, he also found a set of car keys and decided to steal the car. David threw some of the items out of the car and left the area. He drove straight to the hostel, checked in under the name Pat Kelly, and bumped into the Swedish, Canadian, and Swiss tourists, whom he then drove around the area to various attractions. A few days later, he had left the car where it was later found. He had left the keys in the car, but had taken most of the camping equipment and other items with him. The police listened carefully to David's story and realized that there were at least two details that could not be true. Firstly, that the car's exhaust pipe had been hot. Eyewitnesses had seen the car parked in exactly the same place the day before, so it was unlikely that the car had been running just before David had spotted it. Another questionable point in David's account 
was that he claimed to have found a set of car keys inside the car. Urban and Heidi only had one set of keys to the car, so they would not have left the keys inside the car, locked the doors behind them, and then left the scene. Of course, it's possible that they had accidentally left the keys in the car, but the police thought it was more likely that David had got the keys some other way. When David was asked if he had bumped into Urban and Heidi and if he had hurt them in any way, he denied it. So David admitted that he had stolen the car and the couple's belongings and that he was willing to help with the investigation, but that he did not know anything about what had happened to Heidi and Urban and that he could not give them any further information. The police continued to search the area where David claimed to have come across Urban and Heidi's car and then stolen it. As the car had been spotted in the area several times by other people, the police were certain that Heidi and Urban had been murdered in the area and that their bodies had been left somewhere nearby. During the search, neither Heidi nor Urban were found, but police found three more plastic bags of women's clothing that they believed belonged to Heidi. Investigators now felt confident in their case. David had killed Heidi and Urban. It would simply be too coincidental, they thought, if a convicted murderer was hiding in the same area as Heidi and Urban, with no connection to the case. Especially considering that David had some of the couple's belongings and had admitted to stealing their car. The police search of the area led to nothing more, but the police had some circumstantial evidence that led the prosecution to bring a murder charge against David. In October 1990, the trial against David began. At that time, hardly anyone would have foreseen how much of the evidence presented would later be challenged. The first thing discussed during the trial was how the prosecution found it impossible that David could have broken into Urban and Heidi's car in the way he claimed. Both a mechanic working for Subaru and another expert in the field had tried to break into the car in exactly the way David had explained. Although the window had been left open exactly as David had said, and the wire was taken from the same fence David had claimed to have used, neither of the prosecution witnesses managed to break into the car in a way that matched David's explanation. Both witnesses believe that the wire was too flexible and the car's handle too hard for the wire to have been able to open the car door from the inside. The trial also focused on the couple's belongings that had been found in David's home. But of particular interest was an item that had never been found. An acquaintance of David's family testified in court that he had seen David's son wearing a wristwatch, which he had excitedly shown off. The boy had said that he had received it as a gift from his father. The prosecution's theory was that it was Urban's wristwatch, which had not been found in the car or among the items thrown in the wild. Strangely, the watch was not found in David's home either. In the prosecution's view, this proved that David had stolen the watch and disposed of it when he realized that his son had shown it to an outsider and that the watch could be linked to Urban. Another witness, to whom I will return later, also said that David had told him that he had stolen Urban's watch and given it to his son. A particular observation made on April 8th by two people who were traveling at the same time as Heidi and Urban also played a major role in the trial. Two eyewitnesses had told police that they had seen a dark-haired man in his mid-30s and a blonde woman in her 20s camping near where David said he had stolen Heidi and Urban's car. 
witnesses had identified the duo as David and Heidi and suggested to police and prosecutors that David had first killed Urban and then forced Heidi to live with him before killing her too. According to the witnesses, the blonde woman in her 20s had looked European and something seemed wrong. She had been sitting on the trunk of a fallen tree on the ground. She had been sitting on the trunk of a fallen tree on the ground and had remained silent while the man, identified as David, had been talking to other guests in the area. The eyewitnesses testified in court on behalf of the prosecution and said they could positively identify the individuals as Heidi and David. Another testimony that really played a major role in the trial came from three inmates who all said that David had confessed to them that he had killed Heidi and Urban. The identities of the inmate were not made public at the time, and they were only referred to as Witness A, Witness B, and Witness C. Witness A, who was serving a lengthy sentence for heroin trafficking, said that David had told him that he had met Heidi and Urban at a campsite. He had been walking around the area with them for a while and then suddenly attacked them. David had first hit Urban in the neck with a large block of wood and then did the same to Heidi. David then tied Urban to a tree and raped both him and Heidi. After the sexual assault, he dismembered both bodies and buried them in the ground. Witness A's account was so shocking that one of the people watching the trial became so ill during the testimony that the trial had to be temporarily halted. Witness B said that he had been sitting in prison watching television with David when the news reported the disappearance of Urban and Heidi. Witness B said that David had suddenly said out loud, Don't worry, I have cut them up so carefully that they will never be found. Witness C's account was probably the most widely reported in the news, and was considered by the police to be the most reliable because it contained a lot of details that Witness C could not have heard from anyone other than David. Witness C said that David had told him that he had joined Urban and Heidi in a camping area when he suddenly attacked them and hit Urban on the head with a block of wood. He then tied Urban to a tree, raped both Urban and Heidi, and dismembered their bodies. He had thrown the body parts into the sea from a stolen rowing boat, Witness C was also the one who said that David told him that he had stolen Urban's wristwatch. He also said that David had spoken to him about a woman with whom he had had a romantic correspondence. When the correspondence had suddenly ended, David had told Witness C to cut her up like the Swedish couple. One could imagine that the prosecution and jury would find it suspicious that all three prisoners told a different story. The only common thread in all three accounts was that David had dismembered the bodies. However, the police apparently considered the stories to be reliable because they knew that David had a habit of lying, thereby diminishing the credibility of others. Although the prosecution had quite strong circumstantial evidence, the defense knew that they had two very strong points to raise at trial— Firstly, that Heidi and Urban's bodies had never been found. And secondly, that the murder weapon had never been found. Since the bodies had never been found, you couldn't even be sure that Urban and Heidi were dead. And if they were dead, there was no evidence that they had died specifically as victims of murder. 
The defense also raised during the trial the fact that the eyewitnesses' sightings of Heidi and David in the camping area could not be considered reliable. When initially questioned, the eyewitnesses had said that the couple they saw did not look like Heidi and David. The eyewitnesses had initially said that the man did not have a large mustache or beard, although it was proved that David had both a beard and mustache at the time. Witnesses had also said that the woman had not looked like Heidi because she had a much rounder face and a lot of makeup on. People who knew Heidi told the court that Heidi never wore makeup, especially when hiking or camping. The witnesses had told police on the first three occasions that they couldn't say for sure that the couple they had seen were Heidi and David. It was only after police encouraged the witnesses to go to court to see David in the flesh when his car theft charges were heard that the duo came to the conclusion that the man on the camping trip might be David. The defense pointed out that this was a very unprofessional and poor way of identifying people and that it could in no way be considered reliable. Furthermore, the defense pointed out that all studies show that the first identification is always the most reliable and that both witnesses had said that they did not believe that the couple at the campsite were Heidi and David. The defense also pointed out that at the same time as this sighting, Heidi and Urban had been seen in another camping area about six miles away. One of the sightings was therefore false, or both could have been false. The defense also pointed out that although Subaru's own technician and the expert had not managed to break into the Subaru as David had said, David himself had managed to break into the car again when asked to show how he had done it. David had succeeded even though one of his hands had been handcuffed to a prison officer. David had been transported from prison to show how he had carried out the break-in. Just as the car door had clicked open, the police had ordered David to step away from the car door and leave the scene. So David clearly knew what he was doing, and he had almost certainly opened the car door using this technique before, just as he had said. The defense was also forced to raise the fact that the inmates' testimonies could not be considered reliable because they were all serving long sentences for either murder or drug trafficking. They certainly had their own motives for testifying, and probably believed that testimony could help them get out earlier than originally planned. The police assured the court that no deals had been made with the prisoners and that they were testifying at the trial purely out of a desire to help. According to the defense, the prosecution had not presented reliable evidence that would allow the prosecution to say beyond doubt that David had murdered the Swedish couple. In December 1990, David was found guilty of the murder of Urban and Heidi. He was given a life sentence with the possibility of applying for parole after serving 10 years. David pleaded not guilty to the murders, saying he had only stolen the couple's car and the items inside. Police said they had believed David was guilty all along and were not surprised by the outcome of the trial. Heidi's father, Juho Pakanen, and Urban's brother, Stefan Huglin, told the media that they were satisfied with the verdict and would return to Sweden now that the case had been solved and the culprit convicted. However, 10 months after the trial, when the dust had settled on the case, the Swedish couple made headlines again when Urban's body was found. Some embarrassing details for the prosecution and the police had been discovered, 
Firstly, the body was found over 43 miles from where David had said he had stolen the Swede's car. The police had been certain that the crime scene had been in the same area. Urban's body had not been cut into pieces and it was found buried in the ground and had not been thrown into the sea as Witness C had claimed in court. Furthermore, Urban still had his wristwatch on, a watch which, according to the police and prosecution's theory, David had stolen, given to his son, and then disposed of. Based on the body, the coroner concluded that Urban had been stabbed to death. At the time, the police had examined all the knives in David's possession but found no signs of blood on any of them. Urban's body showed no signs of having been struck by an object in the head or neck area. The discovery of Urban's body and the details of the discovery dilute the inmate's testimony and also much of the evidence provided by the police regarding the crime scene and the stolen wristwatch. The new discoveries prompted David to appeal against his conviction, but the appeal was unsuccessful. In 1992, the judge ruled that the new discoveries were not significant enough to warrant a retrial. This is rather strange, because during the original trial, the judge had described the absence of the wristwatch as an important piece of evidence against David. Now, just over a year later, the watch was no longer an important piece of evidence. In 1994, David tried to appeal his conviction again, but this request was also rejected. Witness C, who gave evidence at the 1995 trial, unexpectedly said that the police had bribed him and two other prisoners to testify against David. The police had said that the three prisoners would share $100,000 if they agreed to testify in court that David had told them what he had done to Heidi and Urban. Witness C also said that the police had promised to help them get early release, which they did, as the investigating officer in the case later attended two of the witnesses' parole hearings and gave favorable opinions about them. The same police officer had claimed earlier in the trial that the prisoners had given their statements in good faith and that no agreements had been made. Witness C said that he was sure David was innocent and that he felt guilty after lying about it. The police were investigated, but incredibly, it was found that they had done nothing wrong. David tried again to ask for a retrial, but was again refused. The judge reasoned that he didn't think the prisoner's testimony had played a major role in the first trial and in the jury's decision that David was guilty. This argument also sounds a bit strange, as the public and the jury that followed the trial had reacted very strongly to the prisoner's testimony. David ultimately served 20 years in prison. He was released on parole in 2010. He continues to maintain his innocence and hopes that his conviction will be overturned, even though he has already served his prison sentence. David's verdict divides New Zealanders, with some believing he is innocent. Others believe that David committed the crimes, but that he managed to cover his tracks so well that the police have been unable to get any idea how, where, and when the murders of Heidi and Urban took place. Ian Wishart, a journalist who has followed the case very closely, has written a book called Missing Pieces, in which he highlights a new suspect in Heidi and Urban's murders. This book contains a really good description of the case and a lot of information that I could not find anywhere else. In his book, Ian tells the story of a man named Huya Foley, who escaped from a psychiatric hospital in 1989. 
After escaping, Huia broke into a Catholic church and tried to steal valuables. When a priest came in to stop him, Huia stabbed the priest. He was not caught immediately, but fled the scene and, like David Tamahiri, hid in the woods around Thames. Huia was therefore in the area at the same time as Heidi and Urban. According to Ian's information, Huia had been both in the area where Urban's body was found and in the area where David stole the Swedish couple Subaru. He had been seen by many eyewitnesses and had attracted attention due to his strange behavior. Huia's escape ended in disaster when he was hit by a car and was so badly injured that one of his arms had to be amputated. When Huia's belongings were searched, a sleeping bag, described in the book as a European sleeping bag, was found in his possession. Ian says in the book that Huia's mother agreed to be interviewed and told him that Huia had confessed to the couple's murder. Huia died in 2002, and the nurse who looked after Huia on his deathbed also said that Huia had confessed to her. There is no real evidence against Huia, and he has probably not been investigated further. Firstly, because he died in 2002, and secondly, because David is guilty in the eyes of the law, and the case has been buried in police files since 1990. In the book, Ian also speculates on the possibility that David and Huia may have acted together and killed Heidi and Urban together. Perhaps they had got to know each other after they had escaped from the police in the forest and had come across a Swedish couple somewhere. Heidi's body has never been found, although searches for her have been carried out in many different places. There are some rumors that Heidi is still alive and living deep in the New Zealand forest with her two children. Needless to say, both Heidi's family members and the police have dismissed these rumors, saying that it is highly unlikely that Heidi is still alive. The case of Urban and Heidi is still well known in the area and had a negative impact on Thames and its popularity as a recreational area in the early 90s. David has given some interviews to the media since his release and still lives with his wife, Christine. The identities of Witness C and Witness B have since been made public and Witness C was sentenced to eight years imprisonment for lying at trial. Incidentally, he eventually regretted it and said he had told the truth at trial, but this was no longer believed. Witness A's identity has never been made public, but he has been released from prison and is believed to be living in Fiji. That's all I have for you this time. My name is Lainey Hobbs. Tracing Darkness is written by Tilda Loxonen and translated into English by Podster. Thank you for listening. Next time, we'll be tracing the steps of another interesting case.